0: So far this morning, uh, we have been called out from our uh, slothfulness and our lack of appreciation for all that God has done for us through Christ. We have been told to turn our eyes to Him and to consider Him. Uh, We have been reminded that He is holy and we are not. Uh, We've been reminded that were our sins to be counted against us that no one could stand, We have also been told that if we put our faith in Christ, that his righteousness is the righteousness that will cover us. It is his blood that will redeem us, that it is his glory that will be put on display as he brings these sinners home. And so now at this time in our service, I want to give you this assurance of pardon that comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 where we read, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I was listening to a seminar earlier this week given by a very reputable theologian, a man who for decades not only upheld but preached and taught um, Reformed faith, and he was contrasting the ministry of the New Testament Protestant church with that of the 16th century Roman Catholic Church, and at one point was saying that part of that system was that when you went to the priest and you confessed your sins, that the priest would absolve you of your sin. The priest would say, you are forgiven. And much to my surprise, he said, you know, there's some truth in that. And I obviously listened all the more attentively And then he went on to clarify what he meant. He said what he meant was that when the church gathers like this, we do remind one another that our sins are forgiven. We do say to each other, your sins are forgiven. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Your sins are forgiven. You are clothed in his righteousness. And that's why we say that. That's why we sing about it. That's why every week we get together to be reminded of it. And that's one of the key encouragements that I hope you take away from every service that you share with us here at this church. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of his holy, inspired, inerrant word. Our Father, we thank you for the immense privilege of being able to open up this book and look into it today to survey the treasures that are contained To appropriate to ourselves the promises that are made. To allow our eyes to fall upon glorious demonstration of grace that is there displayed. To be challenged and convicted about the sin in us that remains. But also to be drawn to a place of deeper understanding of what you have done with that sin. Nailing it to the cross as we consider the text before us today, this chapter in Hebrews, I pray that it would be the beginning of a series of messages that will be not only encouraging to our hearts, but also something that will broaden and, and deepen our rational understanding of the basis for our assurance. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. There's a sign that will often be posted in the place where you park your car or where you leave your skis before you go into the chalet, and it will say something to this effect. Not responsible for lost or stolen items. And what that sign is letting you know is that you are responsible for your own stuff. You are responsible for maintaining it. You're responsible for keeping it. And if you either discard it, or or if you get distracted, or if you just leave it there unattended, there's a strong possibility that somebody's going to take it. And in much the same way, the author to the Hebrews is telling these believers regarding their assurance that he is not responsible if it is lost or stolen. He is giving them every warning to take careful aim at understanding it and growing in their appreciation of it and fighting not only for it, but with it, taking what they know and applying it so that their assurance gets deeper and deeper with every passing year. It is one of those precious gifts that God has given to us that is a target of the sin within us and the flesh and the devil always tugging at it, always trying to steal it, always trying to, to cover it up. And so this morning, as we start a new chapter in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be focusing in primarily on this issue of assurance. Hebrews, as you know, was written to the downtrodden. It was written to the scared and the oppressed and the persecuted. And it comes to them as this message of compassion, but it's also a very rational encouragement for them to keep going. By this point, the the focus here is on the true anchor of your soul during trials. And this chapter, all 40 verses of it, will be what helps to both define and describe the assurance that we are to have, namely, the faith that is that assurance. Somewhat surprisingly, it's a very personal rather than doctrinal chapter. You're given numerous examples of how how faith plays out in the life of the average individual. In fact, we see how it looks in the real world. And that's an important distinction. Because I want you to understand here as we get going, what it is that this chapter is not about. When it comes to faith, there are certain things that you might be assuming it'll cover, and it's really not about that. So let's answer that question. What is this chapter not about? Number one, since Pentecost, the faith has been the basis of our doctrine— we are called to defend the faith. And that's good. We should. We we believe what Jude 3 says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We defend the faith. The faith is the doctrine that we believe, but that's not the main point that the author is making. Since the Reformation, discussion about faith is centered on salvation. Faith as it relates to justification. And that also is good. We understand that we are saved by faith and faith alone. We believe what Romans 3.28 says, that for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. But that's not the main point the author is making. We hear a lot today about faith-based morality. That's just a way of saying that faith is a virtue of some kind. It's something that you ought to do. It's something that you ought to do for others. Now, we affirm what James 2, 26 says, that for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, also faith apart from works is dead. We, we acknowledge that your faith is going to have a, a working out in the way that you show love and you care for others, but that's not the main point the author is making. This section is not mainly about doctrine or justification or morality. And I hope that's of some comfort to you because if you've read the chapter, you know that it contains quite a few characters, uh, many of whom would not be exactly the, the ones you would put forward as the example of what it means to be doctrinally sound or what it means to be clearly justified by faith alone, and certainly not what it means to be morally upstanding. I mean, one of the individuals mentioned here was a serial philanderer, a disobeyer of God, a disrespecter of parents, and died in a massive murder-suicide. He's not exactly the one that you would put up as a model for everyone else to follow. So this hall of faith, as it's often called, uh, this list of individuals is not meant to be held up as an example for us to follow. We are not meant to moralize these characters And preach sermons that try to help us become more like the individuals listed here. As a matter of fact, what we are to do, I believe, in order to honor the intention of the author, is to look instead at these people as individuals who modeled for us what faith looks like when you put your absolute trust in God to fulfill all of His promises, despite circumstances that would make you think the opposite. It gives you a rational basis for your assurance It is true that faith saves and sanctifies, but it also preserves. And as we saw from the previous section, this is important because it's the faith that literally preserves your souls. What God secures is infinitely secure. It's the safest vault in the universe. Now we're going to cover all 40 verses of this chapter over the next three weeks. What I'd like to do is start a three-week service, uh, three week uh, three week series today called Faith Defined and Described. Now, this will be the first of three messages in that chapter. Uh, but for today, I just want to take a look at the first three verses. There's three verses to kind of set the stage for this, to give you a definition of faith and to understand the chapter then in light of what the author is intending to communicate to us. Now, the text reads like this, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. This is God's Word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There are four Observations here regarding our relationship to faith. Four particular observations. What we believe, what we think, what we remember, and what we understand. What we believe, what we think, what we remember, and what we understand. Uh, Let's look first at what we believe. This comes from the part of the verse at the beginning that says, Now faith is the assurance of what we hope for. The author is beginning his description. He he says, Now faith is, uh, he is going to give us a definition, going to give us a description. And he says that if you want to understand what faith is, you have to understand that it is assurance, and it is assurance of something in particular. And we believe that the things that we hope for are going to be realized. We believe that the things that we hope for are actually going to be realized. We take God at his word. We know that what is here is fading away and that what is to come is eternal. We know that if he says that it is going to happen, it's going to happen. And the way that that assurance is manifest, the way that it's demonstrated, is through what the author here calls faith. The scripture's describe this assurance from a, a Greek word, hypostasis. It's literally a standing under. It's a word that's used only one other time in this exact way in the New Testament, but several other times in the derivative of it. It's the idea of confidently standing under the title of possession that is given to somebody. It is the belief that the, that the title that you are given, the deed that you are given is Effective that you can say to anybody who would question you uh, that you are the owner of what has been given to you. Uh, When you buy a car, you are given title to that car. Now, if you buy that car and you get a loan, you're not given the title of the car. The person who you owe the money to is given the title of the car. It's actually their car until you pay it off and then it's your car. But if you pay for the car in cash or you pay off the car, you get the title. And now you get this elaborate piece of paper that says you are the owner of the car. You come under that title. You come under that deed. You have full assurance that it belongs to you. Nobody is going to take it away from you. It's mine. I can go into court and I can hold up this piece of paper and say, this belongs to me. That's what he's talking about when he says assurance. You've got the deed in your hand. You are living in a place where you understand it belongs to you. You're holding God essentially accountable to what He has said. The word is also used in other Greek literature to apply to the very essence of who a person is. In fact, it's still used today in medical terminology to describe what sinks to the bottom when fluids are mixed. It's the very weight of, of the substance, it's it's what you are, it's what sinks to the bottom, it's what's got the most mass. And we as Christians are to be defined as those who have at the very heart and core of who we are, this confidence, this assurance. That's the nature of it. It's what we stand under when all the, the bombs are falling. It's the settled belief. It's the rational and settled belief. It is not just a feeling of security. Brothers and sisters, assurance is not something that you feel. It's something that you know. It is something that you believe. And so we hope for the fulfilled promises and the resurrection and the future glory of Christ when it's revealed and the new heavens and the new earth and the redemption of our bodies. And we don't need to have assurance to prove our faith. Instead, faith is proven by our assurance. It is the one who has the assurance that has the faith. So the logical question is, does having assurance mean one is genuinely converted? I think if you were a thinking, rational person, you would say, does that mean then that everybody who is fully assured must be converted, must be a Christian? And the answer is maybe. What matters is not the degree of your assurance. What matters is the object of your assurance. Where is your assurance placed? How do you know? Are you assured, confidently assured, because of Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone? Or are you assured by something else? And if it's a something else, then it's never going to hold. If it's a something else, whatever it is, it's never going to be sufficient, it's never going to stand, it is never going to hold you fast. If it's your family, if it's your marriage, if it's your job, if it's your pastoral ministry, if it's your outward external morality, if it's because of all the things you've never done or all the things you always do, if it's ever internally focused, if it's ever in on you to be the one who guarantees the depth of your assurance, then there will come a point where that will fail. But if the assurance instead is anchored only and completely and absolutely to the finished work of Christ and His promises, then your assurance will never be shaken because it's what you believe. If it comes from being under the finished work of Christ, you are secure. If it comes from being under anything else, you will always struggle. So the first thing we see here is that it is something that we believe. Number two, it is something that we think. This comes from the next part of the first verse where he says, and the certainty... Of what we do not see. Faith is a roof over our head, but it's also, when we look down, the bedrock of our security. The author says that we are to think, we are to know, we are to arrive at a clear and confident conclusion. The word translated conviction here is a word that meant to be convinced with solid, compelling evidence, and especially to expose. In fact, every other place that it's used, it's used in the context of evidence being brought against you to expose you. The idea here of a conviction is like a conviction in a courtroom. You were convicted. You were charged on something. You were arraigned. You were brought into the courtroom. The evidence was brought against you, and the judge and jury decided you're guilty. And what the author does is he takes this idea of being convinced of something based on the evidence and he turns it into something that is good. And he says, Your particular faith, which is seen in your assurance, is based on what you think. And what you think is this deep conviction that you know something is true based on the evidence. Based on the evidence. There is certainty in the conviction that an unseen reality is responsible for what I do see. And there was a reason why the passage of Scripture that was read to you earlier was chosen. Every week, as you know, when we put together the liturgy, when we put together the order of service, we carefully and prayerfully consider every aspect of the service so that it complements. And just in case you weren't paying full attention when that was read to you earlier, let me draw your attention back to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing to a church that wasn't struggling with their assurance. As a matter of fact, it was a church that was struggling with too much assurance. It was a church that was struggling with pride. It was a church that believed that somehow they were actually putting the gospel on display by tolerating sin and unrighteousness. That somehow their spiritual gifts, which were manifold and plentiful, were a demonstration of God's special favor that He had chosen them above the other siblings that they were receiving some kind of double portion. And Paul will repeatedly go back to leveling them, to humbling them, to drawing them back to what they share with all the churches. And he does that so here in chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature, our outer man, speaking as one of the apostles, is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison you want to know what assurance looks like look at Paul here's a man who was willing to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also the body they may kill God's truth abideth still he was willing to bypass all the pledges of the world, all the security of the world, all the peace of the world, and he exchanges that for a promise that was to be seen only at the other end of a sword cutting through his neck. And so what he says here is that this affliction is momentary and light because the glory on the other side is beyond all comparison. You, you, You literally can't even do the math, like there's no way to compare the two whatever is expected of us here whatever is forfeited here whatever it costs here is such minute dust on the scale it doesn't even register in comparison to the eternal weight of glory and so verse 18 continues as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient But the things that are unseen are eternal. What are you to think? What are you to ponder? What are you to consider? When it comes to your assurance, you are to think long and hard and deeply about the certainty of the things that you don't yet see. You are to believe. You are to think. Number three, you are to remember. This is the next verse where he says, this is why the ancients were commended. Now, we don't have time to cover this this week because it's really the whole rest of the chapter that we talk about the people who are commended. And what we're going to see as we move forward through this chapter is that they are grouped together deliberately and particularly. And I want you to remember that this is a, a letter that was written to or a sermon that was preached to Jewish believers likely in the city of Rome who were very familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. They knew of all of these people. And and when you go back and you look at the way the author structured this, he is trying to convey to them this reality. Faith demonstrated in assurance and certainty has always been a characteristic of those who belong to God. It's not a New Testament phenomenon. In fact, everything in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant pointed to this. And so what he's going to do is he's going to give us many examples, and uh, he calls them here the, the ancient ones. Uh, it's actually just the, the, the word that is translated elders elsewhere. But what I want you to see here is that it's a flyover of redemptive history. If you were to take all the list of people that are mentioned there, you're going to see them fit into various categories. For example, the first category would be the elders or the ancient ones. Now, these are the ones like Abel and Noah, These are the ones who are there before even the patriarchs. They cover Genesis 1 to 11. And then you have the next group, which would be the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, that covers Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis 50. And then after that, you have what we might call the sojourners. And this would be under Moses. And you've got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. At the end of that, they begin to move into the land, the conquest, and very shortly after that, the judges appear, and this covers Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And then what we have is the promise that one day there will be a king, and we pick up in Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs we have the prophecies about the kings, then we have the establishment of the kings, then we have the writings of the kings and the wisdom literature, and then after that the prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, You see, the author to the Hebrews is saying to these Hebrew believers, these Jewish Christians, that all of redemptive history, the entire old covenant, everything you learned as a child is sprinkled with examples of people who are demonstrating the faith that caused them to have assurance and the certainty that caused them to believe in all of the promises that God had made to them, even if they never saw the promises fulfilled. And if they can handle that and all the attendant persecution, so can you. Now, when we do our remembering, we get to remember back beyond just the Old Covenant and through the New as well. In fact, we get to see the way that God's faithfulness was evident in the lives of the Old Covenant saints and the New Covenant saints and all the saints in all of church history for the last 2,000 years. And if therefore it's an encouragement to the Hebrew believers in the first century, how much more of an encouragement should it be to us in the 21st? You see, the example here comes from them as a nation and them as a people. The examples that will come all through the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 are not meant to illustrate people who understood right doctrine. They're not meant to illustrate people who were models of a moment in their life when they experienced justification. It is not meant certainly to be a list of people who were so morally upstanding that they made it into this list of virtuous characters. Instead, it is meant to illustrate those who were held fast in a situation when they were tempted to be shaken. And the people mentioned here are a very mixed bunch to be sure. And though they are not commended always for their individual behavior, their assurance in the promises of God is something that is most commendable. So we are to believe, we are to think, we are to remember, and finally we are to understand. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Word understand here is an important term, means to apply mental effort needed to reach the bottom line. To understand something is to apply the mental effort needed to reach the bottom line. You see, Christians don't have a faith that is detached from reality. They have a faith that's encased in reality. They don't have a uh, a faith that is, is merely presuppositional. They have a faith that is very rational, very evidential, very much a faith that can be evaluated and examined. And the mental effort is applied here, so you reach the bottom line and you come to conclusions. And these conclusions underline the fact that we are morally culpable for value judgments. The author is reminding us here that as image bearers of God, we are morally responsible for the decisions that we make. You know, in our circles, sometimes it's tempting for us to so vehemently attack an unbiblical notion of human free will that we abandon all notion of human free will. The reality is that God did create us with a will, that we are created with the ability to choose. The scriptures teach us most clearly is that those choices are either as a consequence of being enslaved to sin or being enslaved to righteousness, but the choice remains, the culpability remains, the decision remains. And so here he is saying that you know better, that you've arrived at this conclusion because you studied it, Because you've been informed about it. Because you now understand it. And now that you understand, you can't say that you were ignorant and you're therefore off the hook. Earlier this week, uh, pastoral staff and our wives were out for a brief retreat. And we were all together in one vehicle. And I was driving and I parked the vehicle. And I got out and we went about our business. And on the way back, um, I noticed there were these signs uh, that were indicating where it is that you would pay in order to park there. And uh, so, you know, as you're approaching the, the vehicle, you're, you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, well I didn't see the sign, so therefore I'm not guilty. And surely God would not allow me to get a ticket because I didn't know any better. And so you approach and, you, and you're doing this thing from afar, you know, you're scanning across and you're thinking, I wonder if there's a piece of paper on that windshield. You get a little closer, and you're thinking, well, maybe it's not on the windshield. Maybe they stuck it on the door, because they do that sometimes, just to get you when you think you've gotten away with something. And so I got right up to the car, and guess what? There's no ticket. You know that feeling? Isn't that a great feeling? There's nothing greater than the feeling of getting away with something. I mean, not a big thing, but a little thing like that. It's like, yeah. So now, this is the opportunity now i'm no longer ignorant now i understand so now if i think well you know i got this far without having to pay maybe i'll just forget about it and we'll just keep going maybe it's just my lucky day at that point it's no longer doing something out of ignorance it's doing something with full understanding that you are violating the rules and it puts you in a whole different category of culpability Just in case you're wondering, the sign said you get two hours free. So I wasn't even at risk, and we weren't even there for two hours. So just don't don't judge me, because I don't know. Some of you might walk out of here going, well, I'm never going back to that church. But here he is saying you understand it. You've reached the bottom line. You know this value judgment. This assurance that you have is an assurance that is anchored in something that you've studied and you know and you believe. You've thought it through. You have the understanding. That is certainty. Faith is certainty. I am certain that all the unseen aspects of this life are working together to accomplish the end to which they were created. And they were created out of nothing. They were created by the sovereign power of God out of nothing. And that cannot be understood fully. And we cannot be held responsible for believing it if it were not revealed to us and so he says though you can't comprehend every dynamic of this i am revealing it to you it's in my word it goes all the way back to genesis and you are to believe it because i've said it and believe my messenger because i gave it to him and nobody else was present when these events occurred but your assurance in the new creation is inextricably linked to your confidence in the God who created the first one. And if you don't have a settled certain conviction that God created this world, that there is a God and He is outside of this world and He created it and He brought it into existence, you're not going to have any settled assurance that He's going to do it again in the new heavens, and the new earth, with your new resurrected body. Now as we sort of focus our attention here on on how to summarize our thoughts. This is going to be what will undergird our study through the rest of this chapter. This is merely an introduction this morning. But let me give you a conclusion by reading question 21 from the Heidelberg Catechism because I think it summarizes it beautifully. The question is, what is true faith? And the answer is that true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. And at the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Now, I want to give a word doubters and a word to debaters scripture says to be patient with those who doubt could very well be that some of you are are doubting maybe some of you are are not christians you you have not put your faith in christ Uh, this is all completely new to you you have no real concept of being assured of what christ has done because you've never believed in what christ has done For others of you, you you are believers, but you would admit to me that there are many, many times where you seriously doubt whether or not you're really saved, whether or not God really loves you, whether or not he really will secure you until the end. And if you've never wrestled with that, let me um, encourage you not to be judgmental of those who do. It's not uncommon. In fact, it's not uncommon among very wise, seasoned, mature, strong Christians. It's not uncommon for people to go through seasons of intense, shocking lack of assurance. Events happen in their life that they could never imagine happening. Things either they have done or things that others have done. Sometimes they're thrown so off kilter by something that happens that their whole world needs to be reoriented, and they start doubting everything. There are people I know that are very mature believers who have been walking with the Lord a lot longer than I have, and circumstances have arisen in their lives that have caused them to go through seasons of intense struggle about whether or not they can really believe what God has said. In fact, if you read the Psalms, many of the Psalms that are, that are written, many of those Psalms where Their laments where the the, the psalmist is explaining his heart to God. He's pouring out his complaint. He's essentially saying that. He's saying, I've begun to doubt. I mean, you've said all these things and I've believed you all the way, but but the things you say and the things that are happening don't seem to line up. A serious amount of questioning. And so if you are in that position or you ever find yourself in that position, I have a, a wonderful word for you this morning. I hope it'll be of of help to you, and it'll be a ministry to you. Horatius Bonner said this, Uncertainty as to our relationship with God is one of the most enfeebling and dispiriting of things. It makes a man heartless. It takes the pith out of him. He cannot fight. He cannot run. He is easily dismayed and gives way. He can do nothing for God. He's describing a doubter. But if that doubter can turn his eyes to Christ... Can see him seated at the right hand of God, to see him interceding for you, to believe what that catechism told us that it was not done just for others, but also for me, that I've been granted forgiveness, that it is everlasting righteousness, that it is total salvation, that it's only by grace and it's on the basis of Christ's merits, then everything changes and the, the doubter can become someone who doesn't just fight for assurance, but fights with it, uses it as a weapon against his or her own doubt. And the quote continues, but when we know that we are of God, we are vigorous, brave, invincible. There is no more quickening truth than this of assurance. So, to the doubter, I would just say, lay hold of the truth that will raise you up from that doubt. And that truth is there for you in Scripture. You need to read it. You need to believe it. You need to think through it. You need to understand it. You need to remember it. Now, a word for the, uh, the debaters, the ones who like to argue against what God has said in His Word. I've called on Thomas Brooks to say something that will be uh, helpful to those who find themselves in that category. And what he says here is, is really most amazing. It's most startling. In fact, it, it almost seems inappropriate the way that he frames up his argument. But I want you to listen carefully because I think you'll find it true and helpful. He says this, Christ is to be answerable for all those that are given to him at the last day. And therefore, we need not doubt, but that he will certainly employ all the power of his Godhead to secure and save all those that he must be accountable for. Christ's charge and care of these that are given to Him extends even to the very day of their resurrection that He may not so much as lose their dust. (laughs) I love that. That after you've died and turned to dust and blown away, Christ who has been given charge of that soul by the Father since before the foundation of the world, won't even let that dust be lost, but will gather it together again and raise it up in glory to be a proof of His fidelity. For saith here, I shall lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater encouragement to us in every day leading up to the last day than the reality of the last day, when all that is promised will be fulfilled, when all that is hoped for will be seen, when that last great day occurs, when he judges the living and the dead, when he returns and all is made new and the resurrection unto life for those that belong to him is finally realized. This is why we sang the hymn we did earlier today, and we'll close with it. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Amen. Amen. Father, we look forward to that great day when You come at last, when Your Son returns to reverse the curse, to make right all that is wrong, to bring the resurrection life to those that are His, to establish His kingdom, this new heaven, this new earth, and to abide with us in perfect peace forever. May assurance The very definition of our faith. Based on knowledge. Based on certainty. Based on understanding. Based on the reality that we know that not just for anyone, but for us in particular, if our faith is in Christ, that his righteousness has been imputed to us and our sinfulness to him, nailed to the cross, dealt with once and for all. May we encourage one another with these words. And may it be what guides us until the end when all our hope is realized. In your name we pray, amen.